Well, turn with me now back to 1 Timothy. If you were paying attention to the order of worship, you might have left your Bible open there. We're just one page over. You notice I wasn't paying attention. I closed my Bible. We're one page over, 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 17 through 25. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. And this provides a little context for our sermon passage this morning over in Numbers 27. Numbers 27. But before that, 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning, Rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in any in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water. But use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident. And those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Amen. The Apostle Paul puts together some seemingly unrelated statements about the office of elder. Isn't this a striking set of ideas? Number one, he compares elders who are worthy of honor, indeed double honor, for their preaching and teaching ministry with ox. I've never been quite sure how I as a preacher should feel about the fact that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, compared me with an ox. An ox is allowed to eat from that which he is doing. Paul says, likewise, let elders benefit from their ministry. Let them profit from the work that they are doing in the church. Number two, he says, let them be honored, in verse 19, with a certain amount of protection from slanderous or idle accusations. Make sure elders have two or three witnesses testifying against them and that they are not alone or idly attacked. But notice then in verse 20 that that doesn't mean that elders are above or beyond rebuke. Verse 20 says to the contrary, once you've established an accusation against an elder, make sure that elder is rebuked publicly so that everyone understands the severity of his violation of his office. But then, fourthly, he says that the elders are to be judged without prejudice or partiality. The Timothy is to not be hasty in laying hands on others, keeping himself free of sin. This verse, verse 22, is often taken, do not lay hands hastily, as be slow to ordain. But in context, 
Paul actually seems to be saying, be slow to discipline. This is the Nehemiah phrase, lay on hands. Nehemiah says to those who camp against the wall on the Sabbath, I will lay hands on you. He doesn't mean ordain them. In this case, whether it's ordination or discipline, Paul is telling Timothy that elders are to be treated with a certain amount of respect, honored for their preaching and teaching, not idly accused, yet when rightly accused, publicly admonished and disciplined, and yet not disciplined with extraordinary prejudice or partiality, but with justice. Be patient. There is then this strange one in verse 23. Don't just drink water, drink wine. It seems to me that working with elders is apparently very stressful for Timothy. And dealing with all of these issues leads Paul to again, notice twice in two passages, to recommend some physical care to Timothy. Timothy, make sure you take care of yourself. Working with these elders is not going to be altogether easy all the time. And then he ends with, some men's sins are clearly evident, some men's good works are clearly evident, some take a while to be revealed. By this, Paul apparently is summing up his teaching on the office of elder with this main message all the way through. Timothy, it is critically important that you have good and godly elders governing the church. So in the words of Treebeard, Don't be hasty. Do not stress yourself out trying to produce the best elders possible and rushing them into the office. Don't do that. Be patient. Some sins take a long time to be revealed. Some men's quality takes a long time to be revealed. Disciple the congregation patiently. With that in mind, turn back to Numbers 27. Our sermon passage this morning is from Numbers 27, and I'll be reading verses 12 through 23. Numbers 27, verses 12 through 23. If you've been following along on your scorecards, our short sermon series on shepherding has come exclusively from the New Testament. Three sermons from Jesus' teaching in which he uses the shepherding metaphor in his teaching. Three places in the epistles where the apostles use the shepherding metaphor in their teaching. What we're doing today is jumping back to the first time in the scriptures that the shepherding metaphor is used. Here in Numbers 27. And this will allow us to sort of draw together, I believe, a lot of the New Testament themes we have been looking at here in its first appearance. So Numbers 27, verses 12 through 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this Mount Abarim, and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, You also shall be gathered to your people, as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. 
These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and lead them in. And the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. And all the children of Israel, and he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Amen. Well, a few years into the ministry and Eugene Peterson was ready to quit. He was ready to resign. He had a session meeting that night. And his daughter, after dinner, five years old, came to him and said, Daddy, would you read me a story? He said, sorry, I I can't, honey. I have a meeting tonight. In a very classic five-year-old way, she rolled her eyes inside and said, Daddy, that's the 27th time in a row, and stormed out of the room. He finished packing up his things, and as he did, he thought to himself, oh, children are so silly with their exaggerations and their hyperbole, and boy, that was an oddly specific exaggeration. She didn't say like a hundred or a million, she said 27. So after that kind of stirred in his mind for a while, he, he followed his daughter down the hall and found that she had a sheet of paper where she was keeping count. 27 consecutive nights without a story, without a song, because daddy had meetings. He was so enraged, so frustrated, so brokenhearted, he hastily penned a one-page resignation letter, stormed down the street to the church building, marched into the the, the, uh, meeting of the elders, and slapped the paper on the table. I resign. I'm done. I'm finished. He had really good elders. They asked him, what's wrong? And he told them the story. And they said, well, what do you want? And he said, I want to be a pastor who prays, who preaches, and who has time to just sit and talk with the people. I don't want to run the church. And all the elders said, okay, well, in the back of your resignation letter, write a list of all the things you do that run the church and hand them over. You are, as of now, fired from all those jobs. Your job is to pray, preach, and talk to the people. That's it. They were good elders. 
they understood that this job of shepherding the flock was never meant for one guy. It's not a one-man show. It wasn't meant to be. It never was. There's only one man in the history of the world who could have ever possibly shouldered the burden of shepherding all the church. And you know what? He deliberately chose not to. When he sees exactly what Moses sees in Numbers 27, that the people of God look like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 9 and 10, our first sermon in this series, Jesus comes up with a solution. He sends out his 12 disciples. He doesn't go himself. He sends out 12 others. This is what we see in our text. The gospel truth, the good news. Jesus sends shepherds to his church. This is good news for us. Jesus sends shepherds to you, his sheep. Not one shepherd. Shepherds, plural. This, if you've been paying along, is the main point of every sermon I've preached for the past month and a half. I've tried to change the nouns and verbs to make it a little more interesting for you. But this seriously has been the one main point. It is Jesus who sends shepherds. Jesus sends shepherds. And if we believe that, if we think that's true of this church, that Jesus will and has and does send us shepherds, then our responsibility is to disciple the men of our church and to see them ordained. Beloved, this is what Jesus would have us do today, this week, this year. Believe that he is sending us shepherds and so disciple and ordain elders. Let's think about this a little bit this morning. Look at the text with me. Notice in verses 12 and 13, the Lord has a message for Moses. And the message is, your time is up. The Lord says to Moses, go up this Mount Abarim and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. This is an interesting point in the life of Moses where every leader would truly wish or dream for this experience. Moses is sent up to this great pinnacle from which he can see the future. He then has this vision of what is to come for his church. Here's our five-year plan, guys. Here's our ten-year plan, guys. I have been up at the top of the mountain. I can see the future. Here's where we're going. This is like ideal stuff, right? This is in all the leadership books. Okay, Moses, once you get that vision, you're going to die. That wasn't in the leadership book. Moses is not allowed to fulfill the vision. Moses is not going to execute the plan. This is a critically important principle in understanding biblical leadership. It's not about the guy who has vision. It's not about the dude who's the farthest up the mountain who can see the longest into the future. That's not what biblical leadership is about, no matter what all the biblical pastors say in their biblical leadership books. As soon as God shows the vision and gives the plan to the leader, the very next thing is, and you're going to die. Your vision doesn't mean anything except to you. You see, the reality is, leaders leave. 
No, don't panic. This, this is not an announcement. I have no, I'm not going anywhere if the Lord spares me. But it is important for us as a congregation to recognize that in 126 years in counting, I am the 17th pastor. And I'm not the best at math, but there's a few of you in the pews who are pretty good at math, and I, I stole your math. There are three pastors who came within a rod's length of 10 years and zero who made it to their 10th anniversary. 126 years, I'm the 17th pastor. None have celebrated a 10-year anniversary in this church. Guys, leaders leave. George Coleman made it nine years and 11 months. He was 25 days short. I don't know what his problem was. <laughs> Friends, leaders leave. It is not all about what they can give you in the future. There is no permanence in shepherding. Shepherding is not about getting the magic guy and holding on to him for the rest of your life. Shepherding is not about the right guy getting into the right situation and holding on to it for the rest of his life. Indeed, as we are told in verse 13, death for Moses is described in that great Hebrew idiom, you will be gathered to your people. In our Western culture, we would look at that phrase and we would say, what do you mean gathered to your people? His people are about to cross the Jordan and go into the land of promise. Those are his people. And God says, no, 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 Moses, you are about to become a footnote in history. Your people are the dead and gone people, and you're about to join them. You've reached that other side of the life arc. You're going to leave. The people will go on. The church will go on. But Moses is done in the story. And then secondly, as your brother Aaron was gathered. Just as the high priest, the first of the high priests, the greatest of the high priests, the one for whom all high priests would be named until Jesus would die and empty his office and another would take his place, so too now Moses must die and another will take his place. Beloved, whether by departure or by death, we as a congregation must accept this reality of shepherding. It isn't permanent. The occupants of the office of elder in this church were not meant to be permanent. They aren't permanent. But I did tell you this was good news. It is good news. Because you see, the office of elder, while its occupants are not permanent, is but a sub-office to a greater office. The chief shepherd, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And he is permanent. You will not always have me. You will not always have the elders you have. You will always have Jesus. Under shepherds leave. The chief shepherd does not. This is where your faith must be. Second principle then that Moses gives or is given, shall we say, is that leaders will also fail. 
The reason Moses is deprived of this final step in fulfilling the vision of bringing the people of God into Israel, in, of Israel into the land of promise, is that back when they were in the wilderness of Zin, there at the at Kadesh near the waters of Meribah, Moses had rebelled against the command to hallow God before their eyes. You may remember this story. It's a dramatic one. Moses has already once brought water from a rock. It's kind of a heady business. I don't know how many of you have brought water from a rock, but when you do, it's kind of hard to go back to being humble. I've never done it. Moses is there leading the people of God and they're again thirsty and they're again complaining and they're again griping and accusing him. And so Moses gets the message. Moses, go talk to the rock. And when you ask the rock nicely, it will bring out its water. Moses gets up there, throws out his staff and says, you rebels, listen to me. This is a shepherd who's fed up with his sheep. Shepherds get that way sometimes. The sheep bite. The sheep make noise. They're annoying. And the shepherd gets tired. Moses is tired. He snaps at the sheep and he says, You rebels, must we, as if he had anything to do with it, bring water from this rock? And he takes his stick and he strikes the rock. Here's the great problem. First, God had commanded him to speak to the rock. He disobeyed God. That's a huge problem. When God says talk, you don't strike. You do what God tells you. The second is the rock is Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Christ was not struck twice. He was crucified once. Now we have only to ask. We do not need to crucify Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We have only to ask. Moses has violated a very central principle of the gospel. This is not a small sin. If we think God is being petty, we are wrong. Moses has broken a very fundamental principle in the gospel. He has failed. His ministry has come up short. And my friends, let me spare you any suspense. There is no elder you currently have, and there is no elder that you can possibly elect this fall who will not fail you. There is no pastor that you can call who will not fail you. Failure is part of the package, it's part of the deal. Just as shepherds are, by definition, not permanent, so shepherds are not entirely sanctified yet, by definition. In the wilderness of this life, they fall short of the glory of God. They lose sight of the gospel. They fall into all manner of the struggles and despair and desperation. The scriptures are sweet and precious in this and constantly reminding us there has never been a shepherd in the scriptures who didn't struggle with his own rebellious heart, with his own deep depression, with his own failures. 
The point of shepherding isn't to achieve sinless men. We have that guy. His name is Jesus. But he, in his wisdom, has chosen not to govern this church through his direct and immediate bodily presence. But by his grace and according to his wisdom, he's done something that I just cannot fathom and yet am privileged to partake of. He has chosen to be your shepherd through this guy, through these guys. Can you believe that? Because I can't. And yet every Sunday I have to do business with it. Shepherds who fail. Shepherds who fall short. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the reality that Jesus has chosen to govern his church through men who will leave and through men who will fall short? Well, Moses gives us the answer. In verse 15, it says, Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord. The rest of it is worth reading, and we'll get to it in a moment. Don't miss these words. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord. What do we do about the fact that our shepherds can't last forever? What do we do about the fact that our shepherds can't be sinless like Jesus? We pray. We talk to our Father in heaven. We pray and say, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh. The God who's actually in charge of the shepherds. Who's in charge of stirring up men for the ministry. What makes a man want to be a minister? What makes a man want to be a shepherd? The Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God that stirs the soul of a man and says, I want to serve the saints and I want to shepherd the flock. Let the God of the Spirit of all flesh. What is it that stirs in the soul of a man to make him obedient to the call? It is the Spirit of God. And so let the Lord, that Spirit of all, spirit, the God of all spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. And this is our metaphor. That the one who is over the congregation, the one whose spirit is stirred by the Spirit of God to do this work, that he may go in and come out before the congregation. This is shepherding language. Yes? The sheep need to go out by day into the pastures in order to eat. But then the sheep by night need to come into the fold where they can sleep in safety. And likewise, the people of God need shepherds who can lead them out into the world and into the pastures of this world. And then to bring them back into the fold of God. There need to be shepherds who go before the flock. That they might not be sheep without a shepherd. This is what Moses asks for. Moses does not argue with God. This is a great lesson for us shepherds. Moses does not dispute the facts. Shepherds leave. Shepherds 
fail. And Moses goes, true. True. But let the Spirit of God not let the departures or the depravity of the shepherds in any way diminish the progress of the sheep. That's Moses' prayer. That the shepherds cry out in prayer, Father, don't let me get in the way of your church's growth. Don't let me get in the way of your church's sanctification. This is Moses' shepherding heart. All right, Father, fine. Raise someone else up. Let someone else shepherd. Replace me then. This is the heart of a shepherd, a real shepherd, who understands I'm not permanent. And if it's my time to go, then fine, Father, replace me. This is the heart of a shepherd that says, I'm going to fail. All right, Father, I failed, then replace me. He wants the welfare of the sheep, not the self. This is what we're looking for in shepherding. So how do we get it? How do we get a man like Moses, in whom is the Spirit of the Lord, devoted to saying, I want the flock out in the field, being enriched on the goodness of Christ, I want the flock tight in the fold, safe, and I want to be the one who shepherds them in this life experience. How do we get men with such a spirit, with such a heart, willing to risk what it is to be a shepherd? The Lord said to Moses in verse 18, take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. What I want you to notice is that God does not choose someone randomly. When he says to Moses in Numbers 27, take Joshua the son of Nun, he is not speaking of someone Moses is like, Joshua, who's that guy? Joshua. He was in the census, wasn't he, somewhere? Joshua is the guy who was with Moses on Mount Sinai when Moses got the Ten Commandments. You know that time when God said, if anyone's on Mount Sinai, I'm going to kill him? Wait a second. How do you reconcile, if you're on Mount Sinai, you're going to die, and Joshua was on Mount Sinai and he didn't die? Because Joshua doesn't count. He's Moses' right-hand man. He's Moses' disciple. Moses is mentoring him. There's something that we could take visually in verse 18. He says, take Joshua the son of Nun with you. That's a tremendous prepositional phrase. Because that's what Moses has been doing for 20 years, 40 years. Everywhere Moses has gone, Joshua has gone with him, even up the forbidden mountain of Sinai. Where Moses goes, Joshua goes with him. Joshua has been discipled by Moses. Joshua has been trained for the office. He has within him the Spirit of God. That's the second feature. But then third, lay your hand on him. Again, the visual is there for us. 
Moses is a man who has walked through the world and shepherded the flock with Joshua. Joshua has been with him. His hand has been upon him. Joshua has been in a public role with Moses, grasping the importance of living the gospel as Moses has. It is through our discipleship, beloved, that men are raised up for the office. We had very good friends in Oklahoma who were blessed with a tremendous number of daughters. And it was a fond conversation when I got to overhear someone say, where are you going to find godly young men for all those daughters? The father said, I don't intend to find them. I intend to make them. He meant discipleship. I mean to be mentoring men in my church. And as I disciple them, hopefully some of them take my daughters off my hands. This is a different family in Oklahoma. They were also blessed with many daughters. He took that advice to heart and married off all his daughters to men he was discipling. It was a program that worked for him. Friends, discipleship is the dynamic that God means to have happen in the church. Not just to find spouses. To make godly men. Boys do not become men naturally. They become big boys. They need discipleship. They need discipline and instruction. There was a great question an RP pastor was fond of asking. In fact, he would go on to write a book in which he embedded this question. Where are your men? Who are you discipling? Who are you mentoring? It doesn't have to be dramatic. In fact, it's better if it's not. Most discipleship works best in casual conversation. Cup of coffee. Lunch. A bike ride, if you like bikes. A walk. These casual everyday life experiences are the ideal environment in which to talk about how to live life with Jesus. How to live life in the love of Jesus. It is not the work of an expert. It is not the work of a specialist. I have my responsibility to disciple people in this church. In fact, I have the responsibility to disciple this church. So do my elders. But friends, discipleship is the work of every believer. I'm picking on men because we're looking at elders. But trust me, we could totally do this sermon for women. We would just go to... Timothy too, wouldn't we? Let older women train younger women. Discipleship is a congregational culture. A way of living together. In a way that rubs love and prayer and Bible reading off on one another. So that we pray together, read together, and grow in love together. This is what raises up men for the office of elder. But then secondly, the Lord provides another instrument. If this is that cultural level of discipleship, 
There is then a more formal means. We call it ordination. Notice that he is to take Joshua and give him some of your authority that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. Moses does this according to verse 22. Again in verse 23, Moses does exactly as the Lord commands. He takes Joshua. He sets him before Eliezer the priest, before all the congregation. He lays his hands on him and he inaugurates him. Starts his ministry. We don't use the word inauguration anymore. Presidents use that. In the office of elder, we use the word installation or the word ordination. Ordination is the initiation into the office. First time you ever go into the office. Or installation is the first time you go into the office in this place. So I was ordained and installed in Edith, Oklahoma, August 7th, 2009. I was installed here in September 2017. This is what God would have men who have been discipled do. To be publicly set apart by the laying on of hands. To be prayed over and set into a formal office in order that they might serve in the church. There is an authority to that office. The authority to shepherd, the authority to care for the flock, the authority to stand before them and say, time to go out, the authority to stand before them and say, time to come in, the authority to gather them into the presence of Christ, the authority to call them into the gospel, the authority to call them into deeper faith and love and obedience to Jesus Christ. This is the authority that is set on the shepherd. That through discipleship they have been equipped to have the kind of humility and grace needed to manage such authority. To recognize rule number one in Christian authority. It is never to be used for self-benefit. Jesus, who had all authority on heaven and earth, made himself nothing and took the form of a servant. This is the paradigm and pattern for church authority. And we disciple men to be like this. To lose self-seeking. To lose self-interest. And this is what we're looking for in shepherding. The men who have been discipled and trained and equipped to exercise the authority for the welfare of the sheep. But then there's something dramatic that caps it off. Moses is told in verse 20, you shall give some of your authority to Joshua. Isn't that a little strange? Do any of you find that a little peculiar? Joshua is not an exact replacement for Moses. That fact is explained in verse 21. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. Joshua is not the immediate and complete successor to Moses. 
There isn't one. There isn't a new Moses. Moses' authority is divided between the priest Eleazar, who is given the responsibility and the authority to inquire the Lord's will of him by means of the Urim and the Thummim. The prophetic power passes Joshua by. Joshua is not made a prophet. He's made a judge. He is to rule over the church, but he is to do so in consultation with the high priest, who is to train him and to teach him to ask for the judgment of the Lord by the Urim and the Thummim. Not every leader who comes and goes, and I think you guys have all discovered this long ago, is exactly like his predecessor. Not every shepherd is exactly like the shepherds we have known. There are shepherds who bring different responsibilities and privileges to the office. And yet the orientation is the fundamental thing. Whatever gifts and graces the man brings to the office to which he is ordained and installed, ultimately what he must and shall bring to the office is his obedience to Christ. His love of Jesus and his desire for Jesus' people to prosper in the presence and love of Jesus Christ. It's this final point, a willingness to accept the work of Christ in his own church that is the highest level of calling in the office of elder. I can give you an illustration. It goes back to the beginning, like good rhetorical sermons do, right? So the opening illustration, Eugene Peterson. He wrote out his list. All those tasks of running the church that he didn't want to have anymore. He passed them over to the elders. And they said, okay, you're not going to run the church anymore. We're going to do it. He looked at him and he said, but you don't know how to. And the elder said, obviously neither do you. A few weeks later, there was a committee meeting. He knew what was going on. And he was getting agitated and worked up and he thought to himself, you know what? I'm just going to go down and sit in the corner and, and see how it's going. He walked down the street. He walked into the meeting. He sat down in the back corner. Chairman stopped everything, looked across the room and said, Pastor Peterson, do you need something? Well, no. Don't you trust us? Well, no. But I'm working on it. And he got up and left. This is what Jesus wants shepherds to understand. It's his church, not theirs. They're his sheep, not theirs. They are there as an act of love, his love. Shepherds are sent by Jesus because he loves his sheep. So friends, let us disciple and ordain elders. Jesus, because he loves you, will send you shepherds. So friends, let's disciple and ordain elders. Please pray with me. 
Our Father in heaven, we rejoice before you in the goodness of your word. We give you thanks for the grace you've given us to make known to us our good shepherd, that in him is the richness and the joy of life. In him is life and life everlasting. In him is abundant life. And we pray, Father, that you would grant life to our church, that you would grant abundant and eternal life to our people, that we might truly live free of our sin, our weakness, our temptation, free to live in the joy and forgiveness and freedom of Christ. We pray that you would glorify him in our midst, strengthening us to disciple one another, to build one another up, and to add to those offices which you have given the church, that we together might grow, prosper, and enjoy peace. To the praise of your glorious name, we ask these things. Amen.